Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Let me tell you about our guest, Dr. Bruce Grayson, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, served at the medical school facility at the Universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was a co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies, and most recently penned after this book, based on nearly five decades of research about near-death experiences. Dr. Bruce, welcome to the program. Good morning, George. Thank you for having me on your show. And I noticed you've got a lot of our guests have written snippets about your book, and they just love it. So uh, congratulations to you, too. Thank you. How did you get involved in this? Uh, You know, doctor of psychiatry, neurobehavioral sciences, how did you get involved in the afterlife? Well, not willingly, I'll tell you that. Oh, boy. I I was raised in in a very scientific household that was purely materialistic. We had no talk in our family about anything spiritual or non-physical or religious we weren't opposed to that it just never came up in our in our lives so i came up with uh that belief that the physical world is all there is when you die that's the end i went through college and medical school like that and then shortly after graduating medical school when i was starting my psychiatric uh training i was confronted with a patient that i went to see in the emergency room one night after she had overdosed and when I went to see her, she was out cold. I couldn't arouse her. Uh, so I went to talk to her roommate who had brought her in in another room in the hospital. And I asked the roommate about what was going on in the patient's life, what stressors she had, what she might have taken. And when I finished with her, I went back to the patient, and she was still totally unarousable. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight, and I arranged to see her the following morning when she woke up. When I went to see her in the morning... She was awake but very, very drowsy, and I introduced myself, and she said, with her eyes still closed, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Oh, jeez. That kind of startled me because I, I thought she was out cold. So yeah. I, to her. I said, you know, I, I didn't know you could see me last night. I thought you were asleep. And then she opened her eyes for the first time and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. Well, that really stunned me. And she could see that I was confused, so she went on to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, what we were wearing, where we were sitting, what we said, all our, my questions, her answers, without making any mistakes. And frankly, wow. I, could, I could not make any sense of that at all. The only way she could have done that is if she had left her body That's right. come to the other room with me. And as far as I could tell, I was my body. That made, made all sense at all. But at the time, I had a job to do. I had to help her with her suicidal thinking, and I couldn't deal with my confusion. So I tried to push it out of my mind and, and work with her. And then in the next several days after that, looking back on this experience, I just couldn't make any sense of it. I tried to tell myself it was a trick. Uh, I, mis- I misheard what she was saying. I misinterpreted it. I just tried not to think about it. And it wasn't until several years later in 1975 that I met Raymond Moody, and he wrote a book called Life After Life. Mm-hmm in which he gave us the term near-death experiences and described what these were like. And I realized for the first time that this experience the patient told me about was not just one story from a crazy patient, but it was part of a phenomenon that was happening to millions of people all over the world. And as a scientist, and as a skeptical one, I couldn't understand this at all. And I realized, therefore, my obligation was to study it and try to figure out what's going on with this. And here I am, 50 years later, still trying to understand it. And Bruce, prior to this episode, 
Were you a believer in life after death? Did you have any thoughts about that? It never even occurred to me to think about that. So you thought, you know, when you die, that's it? Yes, yes. That's as far as I could tell. That's what happened. That's what happened to my pets, to my grandparents. When they died, that was it. And, you know, why was there any reason to think anything else could have happened? Now, so the one episode, I think, opened up your, your mind a little bit, but may not have convinced you totally. When did you start getting pulled in even more? Well, while I talked with Raymond Moody and read his book and realized that there were many, many more of these, I thought, well, we don't have an explanation. I need to try to explain it. So I started trying to study it, trying to collect other cases. I still can't say I believed it. I thought there must be some medical explanation of this, some physiological explanation. It's a hallucination, something like that. And as I kept collecting more and more cases and then trying to corroborate the details they were telling me, I gradually became convinced over the years that there was something more going on here than just physical events. There was something we just couldn't explain by the materialistic model. And there was no one event. It was just the accumulation of case after case after case, thousands of cases over the decades. You know, there was a point in, in my life, uh, Bruce, where just for a brief shining moment, I did not believe in life after death. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine had died in a motorcycle accident, and uh, I looked at this casket of this body, and I'm going, this is it. This is yeah. it. And I snapped out of it really fast. It's a very cold, stark feeling not to accept the fact that there's life after death. I don't like it. I don't like that <laughs> feeling at all. Yeah. And and uh, I then, you know, snapped out of it real quickly and realized, no, there's got to be something there. And one of the reasons for me, taking God out of the equation for a moment, is because of the complexity of life, we still don't understand or get how we got here, why we're here. I'm interviewing you on a national radio show right now. What's this all about? And so I began to say to myself, the fact that there could be life after death with a soul moving on and reincarnation could be very logical. We just don't understand it all. And so my position today, especially after talking to folks like Raymond Moody, you, Eben Alexander, there's something there. There's no doubt in my mind. There's something there. I don't know exactly what, but it's there. Exactly. And as you said, George, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. You can still accept the fact that we we continue after we die. Something about us continues living. And, it you know, it, it makes you not fear death as much as you would if you think this is it. Uh, well, it's an interesting point, because almost every experiencer that I've talked to has said that they are no longer afraid of dying after their near-death experience. No matter what they thought happened to them after their bodies died, they came back almost universally no longer afraid of death. And I'll tell you that, as a psychiatrist, when I heard that, I started worrying about whether this was going to make people suicidal if they hear mm-hmm. about this. Right. So I, I, decided, I said to myself as a scientist, I have to find out whether that's true or not. So I did a study of of people who made suicide attempts, and I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt with those who didn't. And what I found was that over a period of a year, those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal than those who didn't have an NDE. And in fact, a psychologist named Kenneth Ring repeated this study and found the exact same results. And when I asked the near-death experiencers why that was true, They said, well, when you lose your fear of dying, 
you also lose your fear of living. You become much less concerned about losing your life because you know that nothing bad is happening afterwards. So you're more free to appreciate life to the fullest, to find the meaning and purpose and joy in life that you didn't have before. Does science try, Bruce, to come up with a rational ex- uh, excuse for near-death experiences? Of course, of course, and I did too. You know, I, again, I started this out as a materialistic scientist, so I was sure there was some medical explanation for this. And we've had many, many hypotheses proposed, and when we look at the data, those ideas just do not hold water. For example, we thought that maybe lack of oxygen to the brain was causing these hallucinations. Right. People see the light in their brain because they don't have enough oxygen or something. Exactly. But when you actually do the research, what you see is that people in a near-death situation, those who have a near-death experience have more oxygen, actually, than those who don't have NDEs. And likewise, we thought maybe it's due to drugs given to people when they're dying. But we find that the more drugs you're given the less likely you are to report a near-death experience. And this light that I just mentioned, a lot of people report seeing this. What is it? What do you think it is? Well, I'm not sure. They they universally say that it's not uh, a static thing, like a man-made light, like a light bulb, or like the sun. It's a living being uh, that radiates light and also radiates love, oneness, peace, and makes them feel enveloped and cared for. And it's interesting that you hear the same thing across the globe and actually across the centuries we have reports from ancient Greece, Rome, and Egypt that sound just like today's near-death experiences and they all report the same phenomenon but how you were raised, what you were told to believe by your culture and your religion may may determine how you interpret that for example, Christians in the United States may say this warm loving being of light was God or Christ whereas people who were born in a Hindu or Buddhist culture may say this was Krishna or Buddha or something else, or many just say it was a being of light. And in fact, even those who call it God will qualify that and say, I'm using that word so I can communicate with you, so you know what I'm talking about. But it wasn't like the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. A couple thousand years ago in Egypt and then in Tibet, They both wrote books called the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It was almost like a guide for the living to teach them what they were going to go through when they died. So since the beginning of mankind, we've always wondered about the afterlife, haven't we? Yes, we have. Yes, we have. You know, it's interesting that that some of the uh, debunkers who would like to wish this away say that we invented the idea of survival after death to relieve our fears of nothingness. But if you actually look back in ancient history, in in the Greek era, they believed in an afterlife, and they found it terrifying. And a group of of philosophers developed the materialistic philosophy in order to relieve people's fear of dying. And the idea that when you die, that's the end of everything, that was comforting to them. So actually, it was the lack of belief in afterlife that was supposed to be comforting and wish-fulfilling rather than a belief in the afterlife. Some people have said that religion kind of pushed the feeling of the afterlife in order to control people, to make them live a nicer life and, you know, not be as dark or heinous in their their life. But uh, I don't think that's the case. No, well, if you look at uh, cultures that have a strong religious uh, culture in them and those that don't, you don't see 
less crime, less violence in the more religious cultures. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be any correlation between religious belief and morality. Medically speaking, take us through a death, if you would. What's happening to somebody who's in a hospital room and they die of some situation, whether it's a heart attack or they stop breathing or something like that? And then, if you would, Bruce, and it's all speculation, take us beyond that physical death into what's happening to them. Well, of course, it'll be different depending on uh, how they do come close to death. But let me give you an example of a heart attack or a cardiac arrest when the heart stops beating. Uh, as soon as it stops beating, you stop getting blood circulating throughout the body. And, of course, that stops oxygen and fuel from getting to the brain. So you go out right away, right? Not exactly. Like that. You don't go out right away. We used to think that death was a certain point, and now we know that it's actually a process. And your brain functions gradually stop over a matter of, of minutes as you get less, as you use up all your oxygen in the brain. And within about four or five minutes, you start getting marked changes in the brain waves, in the electrical activity in the brain. And within about 12 minutes or so, you get complete nothingness in the brain. They call it flatlining, when the EEG, the tracing of brain waves, goes completely flat. And at that point, as far as we can tell, there's no metabolic activity going on in the brain. But more recent research by uh, critical care and medicine physicians, such as Sam Parnia in New York, mm-hmm. have shown that it actually takes a period of, of, many t- of many hours sometimes for all the brain cells to stop functioning. They go out bit by bit, and it takes a long period of time before you're totally uh, quote, dead. So is it conceivable, physically speaking, that when you're so-called dead, your brain is alive for a couple hours and you sense things, you hear things, but you can't move because you're just dead? Nope. There's a difference between some of the cells being alive and it being functioning to be able to think and process. Most of our physiological explanations of consciousness suggest that you need a fully intact cerebral cortex, the main large part of the brain on the outside of the brain. And unless that is functioning at a high level, you do not get uh, logical thinking, you not get perceptions, uh, vision, hearing, and you can't formulate thoughts and desires unless you have the whole brain functioning. So you may get bits of, of cells functioning, which may keep you breathing and may keep your heart beating or try to, but it doesn't produce consciousness. That requires an intact functioning brain. Okay, so once they physically die, take us into the afterlife. In your opinion, what's it like? Well, you know, again, as a scientist, I can't say anything is proven to me, but what the evidence seems to show from near-death experiences is that after you die, after the body dies, you have a sense of leaving the physical body. Okay. And in many cases, you are able to look down at your body so you, so you can see it. see it. Do you realize you're dead? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. In fact, many people report that they looked down at their body and did not recognize it as their own body for a while huh. until they saw some unique feature on it, a class ring on the finger or a certain uh, tattoo or a mark on the body, and they realized with a shock, that's my body. Uh, and then they realized for the first time that they are dead. Often it's a shock, they're confused by it. Uh, They often feel, once they realize what's going on, relieved by that and a sense of freedom from it. 
Are they alone, or are they visited by their dead loved ones? Well, they're often alone at first, although if they're um, aware of what's going on around the body, they may perceive the events going around the body. For example, doctors trying to resuscitate them. And they often see and report accurately very unexpected things, which is convincing this to me that these are not hallucinations. Hallucinations do not produce accurate perceptions of what's going on. But these people describe very unusual things that are happening that they couldn't have known unless they were watching it. And after a while, they may lose interest or get distracted from the scene around the body by other things going on, and they find themselves in another realm, not the physical world, but usually a beautiful realm that's suffused with light. They encounter this being of light that makes them feel peaceful and warm and, and loved. And then they may encounter other beings, some of which they recognize as deceased loved ones. Would you say that this is your soul that is doing this and going through this process? Well, soul has a lot of uh, baggage attached to it, that word. Uh, people can call it soul or spirit, or they just call it mind. Uh, I'm not sure what to label, label to put on it, but it's definitely that part of us that can think and feel and perceive and make decisions, um, and feel emotions. Uh, that These are things that usually we think the brain creates, but clearly it can go on without the help of the brain. So when they're in this other state and they're seeing other beings that have uh, died and uh, that they're there too, at what point do we have the heaven and hell, or do we? Um, that's a great question, because that, again, is determined in part by what you have been prepared by your culture to believe. Many people don't report anything like that. They say, I can't describe any, any physical characteristics of the afterworld. I can tell you events that happened there, meeting people and so forth, and reviewing my life and so forth. But I can't tell you what it was like. Other people do, and they sometimes, very rarely, will describe um, a heavenly or a hellish scenario, uh, usually consistent with what their religion has told them to believe, but sometimes directly contradicting what they were told that was going to happen. More often, they describe some nondescript pastoral scene. I was in a beautiful valley with uh, you know, wonderful flowers that I've never seen before, colors I haven't seen, sounds I've never heard before, or they may just describe feeling like they are in outer space. And often they say, there are no words to describe it. So if I tell you what it's like, I'm distorting it by using metaphors because I can't put it into words. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.